What is the church? We talk about it all the time. You are it. We, we would give, hopefully, the right answer and say the people. Try again. The people. All right. Because we, we know that. But isn't it true that it's easy to get in the routine and the rut to show up to this building or to show up to some other building or click through online and do the thing and then move on from the thing? Are you willing to be honest in church today that you've ever done that or maybe are doing that right now? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> He's like, no, no. We have one honest man in the back. God bless you. <laughs> no, you know, you're not even answering me because we, we do that, right? I, I, as your pastor, like it's easy for me to go through the motions and do the writing and do the praying and do the, do the, do the reading and get up here and do the thing and wave my arms a little bit and do the things But at the end of the day, what is the church? Like, why are you committing? Why do billions of people around the world and throughout history, especially these last 2,000 years, commit to this? It's an important question. It's one that you have to wrestle with. And it leads to a lot of different questions, but at its basic level, what is the church? Can I start with a few things that it's not? And, and I say this because we're religious people, and sometimes we, we have to think through what something is not before we talk about what it is. And I'm not going to belabor this, but there, there have been movements in the past few years and months, and really they've been around for a long time, um, to try new versions of church, new versions of church and new expressions of church. And some of those are great. Some of them are not great. And I'm not going to go through what they are. But but I do want to point out some things that actually constitute a church and then ask an even better question. What does Jesus say about his church? And, And what was the church that the Holy Spirit first empowered in the book of Acts And then I want to go through quickly, I'm going to try quickly to go through seven things that make up a church. But let's begin with what it's not. A church is not a huddle on the beach with a few friends. Now, if you want to grab some church people and go huddle on the beach, that would be pretty epic. And if you pray at the same time, God will move in your midst. Promise you. He will. It's his creation. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament. That's how I memorized it. It doesn't say that in your modern translations. But the firmament, right, declares. And so, that is, but but that doesn't make up a church. The church can go do that. But that is not what makes up a church. It's not our small groups, our city groups in a house. A church can do that, but that isn't on its own a local church. It can be that. The church is not just praying with another believer. That is something the church does, but it is not a church. And I could go on and on with these examples, but do you track with me? Like, 
like there's a lot of things that we can do as the church, but they do not constitute a church. Really, because a church is not what you and I feel like it should be. We live in a really consumeristic culture. Have you noticed? We're products, every single one of us, of our consumeristic culture. And we all express that in different ways. So it can't be tied to what we feel like it should be. And can I go a step farther? It can't be tied to your poor experience with another church or, wait for it, this church. You might have had a poor experience at this church. I have. And I'm I, kind of what I made it, right? Like, and I still had some poor experiences. So it can't be tied to our experience in a particular church. Because you're not perfect, I'm not perfect, there's only been one perfect, and he's seated on the throne, amen? And yet we're humans. And so I bring my stuff to the meeting, and you bring your stuff to the family, right? And so we're, we're bound to have those poor experiences. But one of the beauties of the church is love. That in spite of those, we come back to the table because we are one body, according to the scriptures. So let's ask the better question. What does Jesus say his church is? It's actually a pretty crazy story if you think about it in terms of historical events, right? A lot of times we read the scripture, we read the Bible, and we like, we can just move that into a category that just seems otherworldly and forget that it was humans just like you and I who were a part of that first expression of the church. But it even starts before that, doesn't it? It starts with Jesus when he was on earth before he went to die where he says some things to Peter and to his disciples that are pretty amazing. In Matthew chapter 16... Verses 13 to 20 uh, is one of those stories. And it's when Jesus asks the disciples who they say that he is. Listen to this in Matthew 16, starting verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Can I just pause here and say, That's the most important question that any human for the for throughout history past, present and future can answer. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, and more people have followed Jesus in the history of the world than anybody else, more paintings, more songs, more you name it, he's the most influential person in the history of the world. So if he is who he said he is and he declared himself to be God. He declared himself, if you have seen the Father, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father, he said. Right? He said, I'm God. So he asked them that. Who, who do, who, as you travel around, who, who do people say that I am? 
And here were their answers in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. By the way, big names in that culture. I mean, if any one of you or I in that culture, some of you have been like, man, that guy's a lot like Elijah. That guy's a lot like John the Baptist. You'd be like, that's right. Feel good about that. But then he followed up with a really important question. He says in verse 15, but he said to them, who do you say that I am? And I would would invite you to answer that question even right now because your answer has impacts on this afternoon, tomorrow, how you raise your kids, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, and on and on and on. But here's Peter's answer in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. What an answer. That was the right answer, by the way. Now, if you were to drop down to verse 23, just a few verses later, Peter's being called Satan. So you can have all the head knowledge in the world, right? But that's not our point right now. Verse 17, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Right answer. But here for our study is an important verse in verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now that our Catholic friends would interpret that as being Peter. Peter, on you I'm going to build the church. We would look at this and say, no, it wasn't Peter, but the foundational principle of the gospel, the declaration that Jesus is God. And what Jesus was about to go do on the cross would forever change the history of the world and would draw you and I, when we take communion in just a couple minutes, we're going to declare this by that act that his break, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, and then his resurrection forever changed everybody's life. says, and I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And then how about this for some encouragement today? And the gates of hell shall not, lift up your voice and say, shall not. Come on, you got to say it with some gusto. Shall not. That's what I'm talking about. Shall not prevail against it. What an amazing, an amazing thing to say. But it it flows past us because we've heard it before. But just think about that as we're praying for needs. And John, I forgot about yours. We're going to get that at the end. I'll be praying for you as well. But think about it. We pray. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and hell won't prevail against it. So he would go on in in other places and say, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Why? What makes you and I righteous? The things we do? Of course not. I just like to think about this. I know me. So even though I can fake you out, I know me. And you know you. And apart from Jesus What's the scripture say? There's no one righteous, not even one person. And so we're all equal at the foot of the cross. 
And so it's on that rock that Jesus is going to build his church. And then he says, then he says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he tells him to tell nobody. <laughs> I always hated that, those verses where Jesus is like, does something incredible. And then he's like, and don't tell anyone. You're like, what? Come on. Right? But, parenthesis, some of us take that part too seriously now. All right, I'm stepping on your toes. I'm going to keep going. All right? What is the church? Jesus comes and he says, on the foundation of the gospel, on the declaration that I am the living God, that is going to go die on the cross, be raised to life three days later, and then... The church will be birthed, right? Jump to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to what it says. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you, he's looking at these same disciples. Okay, so fast forward. So they had that conversation. I'm going to build my church and hell will not prevail against it. And they couldn't have any idea what that would mean yet. They just have no clue what that was going to look like. So you fast forward, there's 120 of them in a room about this size and Peter gets up and he delivers a sermon and then they're going to see Pentecost happen in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit comes. But right before that, right before that, Jesus was standing on a mountain ready to be transfigured, ready to leave. Right? Remember he told his disciples, it's going to be better for you that I go away. Like that's the biggest colossal in scripture. Yeah, right. (laughs) How could, they, how could that possibly get better, Jesus? But you and I know the answer, right? Because the church would be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Look at it. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So the ascension's about to happen. They're asking him, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Is, is this it? Like, are you going to overthrow Rome and like do the thing? And he gives them a completely different picture. Completely different picture. Listen to it. He says, not for you to know when that's coming. And then verse 8, but you will receive power. Process that because that's for you too. You will receive power. Holy Spirit power. The word there is dynamite. That's the Greek word. It means dynamite. That kind of power. But not just to do whatever you feel like, right? It's it's not just so that you can be awesome. What does it say? It says, but you will receive power to be my what? Louder than that. To be my what? Witness. To be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And by the way, you and I are the end of the earth. We're here because of that. It's powerful. It's really powerful. And so that is what fuels the church. And if we had time to go through Acts, we could look at the explosion, the absolute explosion of the church that would take 
the world by storm. It's incredible. But we're talking about the church. And so this next verse is not going to be on the screen, but this morning I felt like we needed to look at it. It's just another chapter later. It tells us as that church was born, as the church was born, what it is that they devoted themselves to. What is it that Jesus' church gives themselves to? There's, there's a ton of things that the modern Western church that we've given ourselves to. And we're not going to go through that list, but you can probably think of a few. Some of them even really good. But if you come back to what is the church, what is the things the church, us, together, devote ourselves to? Not that we don't do other things or can't do other things or that other things are wrong, but what do we devote ourselves to? Here they are. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles. Here it is, teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. Four things, super simple, super powerful. Teaching, truth, God's word. There has to be a standard. I'll get there in a second. Fellowship, people, people. John 17, Jesus said, it's by our love for one another that the world will know that Jesus is God. Not your great apologetic skill, not you having all the answers, but by the sheer fact that we are different. And I don't mean like different, different like that. <laughs> Some of us are that. I mean like countercultural. Like love for one another. True caring. Human flourishing. Like that kind of different. Listen to what happened in verse 43. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done for the apostles and all who believed were what together and had all things in common. And they were selling stuff. They were giving stuff away. They were doing all kinds of stuff. It says day by day they were attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And the Bible says that the Lord added to their number every day those who were being saved. Incredible. And so Jesus had... The Bible has very specific truths about what the church is. So let's define it. Let's think about some old guys first. Augustine, St. Augustine said that and called the church the spiritual city of God. It's a great way to think about it. That, that we're, we're a city within a city. That we're a people within a people. The word holy that Peter would use to describe the church means to be set apart. Not taken away, still here, but there is something different. There's something that sets us apart, that when the Holy Spirit of God indwells your life and gives you power to be his witness, and you devote yourself to a local group of people to disciple each other, and to bear each other's burdens, and you actually live that way, that, that you're different. That things change the spiritual city of God. Spurgeon, great, but uh, he's remembered as the prince of preachers, would write it this way. A church is not a load of bricks. Remember, it's a house built together. A church is not a bundle of cuttings in the gardener's hand. 
other words, it's not about what you and I can do. It's not about how much we till the ground. I love this. He says, it's a vine and we are the branches. John 15, right? The true church is an organized whole and life, true spiritual life, wherever it is paramount in the church with its rules and rubrics is quite sure to create order and arrangement. In other words, there's a point to this. Another writer would write this definition. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances or sacraments. Like, there, there are reasons, but my favorite and what I want to go through is the great reformer Martin Luther offered seven pillars to what makes a church. And I want to fly through them so that we can get to the communion table, all right? But he said these, these seven, the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, discipline, offices, worship, and suffering. That if those seven things are present, you have a church. That's why it can't just be a huddle on the beach, right? And we say, I experienced church today. You experience the result of the church being in the world on the beach. But we have to recognize that there, there is an organization to what God is doing. He set it up that way for a reason. Let's start with baptism, though. We celebrate baptism here. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, it says this, But when they believed Philip, as he, listen to this, preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So, so they believed what was preached, which is the gospel. What immediately happened, it says they were baptized, both men and women. So the gospel is preached. People believe People are baptized. If you were to jump, and again, I'm moving quickly, so these are not all on the screen, but if you were to jump to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 15, here's what it says. It says, as you receive Christ, walk in Christ, rooted and built up. Go to the next one. See to it that no one takes you captive by empty philosophy, right? As you live in the world, you pay attention to the things of the world, You have to be in the word to know. And then it says this in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is supremely spiritual. That it's actually the powerful working of God raising you from the dead that causes you to ever want to get in the water in the first place. And there's a lot of expressions of baptism in God's church in different denominations. But that's not the point today. The point today is that there are places, and you hear me say this all the time, where God promises to meet you. Baptism is one of those. It's one of the ordinances, one of the sacraments given to the church. Because it's one of the places where God says, I'll be there. And I know God's everywhere, but there are times when you feel him there. And it's awesome. We love baptism. 
and we celebrate it because baptism is initiated by God. It's through the preaching of his word and his drawing you to himself through that preached word. And so the church performs and celebrates baptism. Next one is the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that at the end, but 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, if you want to write something down, we're going to do that last. Then the next one that he said was worship. Was worship. If there, if there is a more basic function of the church, I don't know what it is. Worship. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship. Listen, listen to, like, let's just talk about the church. Like, when we gather, what role does worship play? In Ephesians five eighteen to 20, it says this, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Here it is. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you walk into this place and we begin to sing, you actually participating in the singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord matters. Now, some of us are freer than others when it comes to the expression of worship. And you can YouTube the funny things about that be worth your time if you need something fun to do about all the worship all the worship moves but it's very intentional and very important because there is no other response to the movement of God in your life it's the only thing that will suffice our soul that will satisfy our soul is to sing and make melody to the Lord from our heart. We get to. Because Jesus, when he was standing at the well in Samaria and was looking at the woman, the Samaritan woman, who had all kinds of problems, and he would heal her of those, and his disciples would come back and be like, what are you doing? You're talking to a woman, first of all? I mean, these are, these are, God, these are Jesus' disciples. I mean, come on. They didn't pick up on anything yet. Like, you're talking to a woman, and she's from Samaria. Like, what's wrong with you? That scenario, by the way, he sets them all straight. You can go read it in John. But listen to what he says to her, because she's trying to fish. Like, there's something different about this guy, right? They're, why are you talking to me? Why are you asking me to get you water? Like, they're, they're, and there's a lot of historical significance there, cultural significance there. Well, listen to what he says that has to do with us right now. Here's what he says in John chapter 4, verse 22 to 24. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But here it is. But the hour is coming and is now here. He's talking about himself. Is now here right now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God was taking it out of the realm of the religious and into the realm of the relationship. 
Did you see what he said? He said, there's coming a time, and it is now here because I'm here, that we will worship everywhere in spirit and truth. Like we're here right now because of what he said right there. When he would say to Peter, I'm going to build my church, hell will never stop it. And then he goes to the woman on the well and he says, there's coming a time and it's now here. You're going to worship all around the world in spirit and in truth. So powerful. We could spend weeks just on that. But the next one is important too because one, one of the reasons that you, can't, that you don't just have a church huddle on the beach and call it church is because the Bible lays out what, what we call as offices. Shameless plug for growth track, August 22nd. It's online. You should sign up if you haven't done it yet because we want to know you. We want to get you connected to the church. We want to get you in. But why? Why? There are offices here. God has designed his church for leadership. But maybe not the way you've experienced it in your church life. The leaders of this church, myself, our elders, are not here to tell you what to do. We're not here to, as the scriptures say, lord over you in some weird way, like I don't have any problems of my own. I could, I could give you examples right now that are, there's a podcast, and you can go listen to this if you want to, there's a podcast right now that is about one specific church that is literally in the top five of all podcasts in the world. And it's about a church because of this issue. What does church leadership look like? And that podcast is about how south that can go. But nonetheless, it's, it's in the scripture. But listen, it, it, it's, it's not for, for somebody like myself to abuse that spiritual kind of power. That's abuse. But it's spiritual. Serving you and guiding you and shepherding you towards human flourishing, which is only found in Jesus. Does that make sense? I'm not just in your life to follow you around and make sure you do what I think you should do. No, no, no. You, you come here and you, you sit here and you devote yourself to teaching because of this book, not because of what I do. Super important because when it goes wrong, it goes really, really wrong. The Bible is also clear about plurality of leadership, that, that we have an elder team here so that I don't just do whatever the heck I feel like. You can say amen there. They're awesome guys, by the way. I want you to get to know them. But can I say one, one other thing is there, there's also been a movement for churches, big or small, to move away from that and to have a single leader. And can I just tell you that that's extremely dangerous? Spiritually, it's dangerous financially. It's, it's, just, it's just not the way God asks for it to be. Even in house church, there needs to be a plurality of leadership. Otherwise, there's no accountability. I can tell you want me to give you some verses so that it's God's word, not me. I agree. Let's go. Titus, this is not going to be on the screen because I'm going to go too fast. But this will be on YouTube and our podcast, so you can go back and pause and slow it down, do whatever you want. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says this to Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete. 
so that you might put what remained into order. Not just willy-nilly, led by the Spirit. You are to be led by the Spirit. But the Spirit also gave us an order of which we do what we do. And then here's this. And to appoint elders, elders in every town as I directed you. Incredibly important. Elders. What if, I I was going to say what if I go out and get hit by a bus, but that's really morbid. So I'm not going to say that. But what if something happened to me? (laughs) You need elders. James 5.14, a little more practical. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Acts 14.23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Not just a few, not just the big ones, not just the house churches. Every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those in the labor of preaching and teaching. Specific roles, offices for the church. Acts 20.17, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Are you picking up what I'm laying down? Elders, plurality of leadership. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, so exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Don't say boss them around. Don't say tell them what to do all the time. Don't say tell you what color shirt to wear or car to buy or house to buy or what job to take. God's going to work through all of that, through you, through the Holy Spirit, just fine. But shepherd them, exercising oversight, not under compulsionly, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a totally different goal to being an elder in God's church. You don't have a biblically functioning church without it. You just don't. And so whether you move from here somewhere else and you look for a new church or whatever... Should never be in a church that doesn't have elders. There's also mentioned in scripture deacons. I'm not going to spend a ton of time unpacking that, but that's a ministry of helps who are just organized. We call them servant leaders here. Another shameless plug for growth track. Get in. The next one, though, discipline. Church discipline. All right? I'm not, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but. Every now and then, you and I make poor decisions. And who is going to be there to love you in your worst moments back to the family of God? We often think about discipline as some terrible thing. And I just want to say that discipline in Scripture is not a terrible thing. It's a loving thing. 
most things that happen that are good in this life require some discipline, right? Not just a slap on the wrist. I'm talking about like hard work, discipline, love. It's messy. Walking with people. All of that. Romans 16, 17. Troublemakers who sow discord. Elders of the church, get with that person. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, if you're unruly and disorderly, if you go nuts in here, we're going to talk about it. Yeah? (laughs) Some of you are not amused. 2 Thessalonians 3, those who disobey the doctrines of the faith. Not as I'm going to come put you in time out like I do my five-year-old, but that we would come talk about it and say, listen, I I think think you're off here. Right? So, First Timothy 6, those who deny the doctrine of the faith. So, not, not, we're not, not just for the heck of it, but out of love. Then suffering, I don't think I need to spend time here. But even in your own marriages and your friendships and with your kids, nothing really creates a bond between people like suffering does. It's not in the good times that those deep connections are made. It's in the times of suffering. As you suffer and the church is with you in your suffering, that Jesus, Hebrews says, is with you in your suffering. It's in those moments. Those moments, right? That's why Peter said, as you rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings. But then he says at the end of 1 Peter 4, he says, will entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Powerful. Then I want to land in this spot with the word and communion. Why is the word, why is the Bible a pillar for the church? Now you and I know the right answer, right? Because it's God's word. But even practically, as you look around our culture, it's super important for us to have a basis to start from, a standard of truth to start from. Because one of the biggest struggles in our culture right now is the lack of a standard of truth. It simply does not work, as the book of Judges says, for everyone to do what is right in their own eyes. It is simply not possible, and it will implode on itself. You simply cannot affirm what everybody believes without that falling in on itself. It's not possible. There there are lines drawn in the sand. So we can create laws, but what happens when those laws are wrong and and we we go through so many examples but but the reason is because we aren't perfect and so you can't affirm everybody's agenda around you it's just not possible and it's also not actually loving when you break it down If there's no definite standard, then who are you to tell me what to do? 
and who am I to tell you what to do? And who is our government to tell us what to do? And we go on and on and on, right? God's recorded word governs God's church. And so the things that we do at Redeemer City Church are found in the Bible. And if the Bible doesn't speak to it, we don't speak to it. That's a little thing called wisdom, and we think you can find that by getting in a city group. Another shameless plug for August 29th and following. (laughs) Because we have to have something to judge it. Because otherwise, what what would happen here is it would just be up to my opinions, right? Without plurality of leaders, without the Bible. Why is it so important? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's why this book and not some other one. That's good. That's why that book, all of it's breathed by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That was written to pastors, to elders, that verse. For those of us in leadership to say, this, this is what we come back to every single time. So we surrender, right? So all of those things are part of what makes up a church. And they matter. And while it's not the most entertaining thing, it is very important for all of us to get that same basic level, that same basic foundation of what a church is. That these seven things are what we do. It's what we devote ourselves to. It's what God laid out for us. So we surrender. We, we lay our will and our lives down to the Father's will and the Father. And then we commit to each other to love and serve each other, right? Think about what, as we bring it full circle, what we, what we read about that first church. When the church was born, they immediately devoted themselves to these few things. And there may be things that are birthed out of that, what we call vision out, what we call serving the city. Like There's going to be things birthed out of that and evangelism and all these things. But it begins there. That's what constitutes a church. And then next week and the following week, we're, we're going to talk about the mission of the church. Not what makes up a church. We just looked at that. But then the next two weeks, we're going to look at what's the mission of the church. What, now, that, now that we have the church, we devoted to these things, what do we do? What's the mission of the church? And then after that, we're going to look at seven churches in the book of Revelation and just do little case studies on each one of them. So really excited about that. But I have the band come up, and I want to land on communion. And we talked specifically about this last week, so I'm not going to unpack it all. But as you gather as the church, as we, as I, gather as the church, perhaps the most powerful thing we can do is commune directly with Jesus. I want you to listen to what 1 Corinthians 10 says has to say. In verse 16, Paul wrote this, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, right? 
Just grab it from near you. When you grab this little thing, this little cup, this little wafer, this little styrofoam, whatever element a church chooses to use, when you grab this and we bless it, what's going on there? Listen to what it says. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? There are places where God promises to show up. There are things that we need every week because we need Jesus every week. Amen? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, the church. It comes full circle to this moment and we all partake of one bread who is Jesus. And so through Jesus, we take these elements and we participate in his body and blood. It's a celebration of the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about examining yourself and I'd encourage you to do that now. You can tune me out, close your eyes, and pray. I'll yak for a minute so you can do that. But we examine ourselves because this is a holy moment. To be in the presence of God is an incredible thing. And it is a celebration, but it's also awe-inspiring. We're reminded that the sins we commit are sins committed against God. That that sin is offensive to our God. And so we come into this moment every week because we need to confess our sins to the Lord. And there might be somebody you need to call or text or go see and ask forgiveness or forgive. So it says, examine yourself in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. We don't want to take it in an unworthy manner. So if you need to do that, I would encourage you to do that right now, to get right with others and the Lord. But even in that examining, we see the grace of God, don't we? What an amazing thing that in this moment as we partake of the body and blood of Jesus, that he meets us here, he participates with us here, and he forgives us of those sins. If you're not a Christian today or you're watching online or you listen to this later and you're not a Christian, this is, this is the most important thing, right? It's, it's what, where we started. When Jesus would look at his disciples, he would also look at you and say, who do you say that I am? Have to answer that question. And we would encourage you to answer it before you take communion. And Romans tells us that He adopts us into his family, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, you will be saved. And then you're brought into the church. You're supernaturally adopted into the family of God, given the Holy Spirit with great power to be his witness. And so we come to the elements, and I would encourage you to take the top one out. Does the band need one? Gotcha.
And so we, we take that wafer out and, and I would encourage you to break it and be reminded as you break it and you listen to that breaking that it was the breaking of Jesus' body for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Listen to what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and that's what you're holding in your hand. And when he had given thanks, we've been doing that all morning, giving thanks to him. He broke it, which is why you just broke it, to be reminded. And he said, this is my body. Which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then it says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's what we talked about, where he moved it from the religious to the relational. And you could on your own, enter into the holiest place and commune with the Lord. New covenant in my blood. And he said, do this as often as you drink it, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So we think of Jesus as we take the blood, the wine. And then it ends this way. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Amen? So we want to stand together in this moment. One of the gospel writers says that when they finished that first, when they finished that first Lord's Supper together, that they went out and they sung a hymn. Since they went up on a mountain, we don't have any of those. So the best we can give you is a hymn. But it goes back to one of those things we talked about. Worship. That the only appropriate response to what Jesus has done for us is to worship Him. Amen? So let's worship Him together in this moment, and I'll come back up.